Were you ever not in school? Yeah, I, that's that's exactly what my husband says. He said that I was really a professional funny. student. Yeah, this is. Yeah. <laughs> this is a special bonus episode. It's open to all because it's so important. It's an interview I did about the Israeli elections with Diana Butu, who is a Palestinian Canadian lawyer and former advisor to Palestinian negotiators. She's also a policy advisor to the Palestinian Policy Network. She talks to me about her latest piece for the nation, which is called The Israeli Elections Are a Referendum on Who Can Treat Palestinians Most Harshly. As listeners may know, there were Israeli elections on September 17th. Israel's former army chief, Benny Gantz, has declared victory over Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Gantz's Blue and White Party has two more parliamentary seats than Netanyahu's Likud Party. And Gantz has rejected Netanyahu's call for a power-sharing agreement. Please rain review The Katie Helper Show on iTunes. Also, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show for some great Patreon-only episodes that I'll be releasing. One is a short little thing where I talk about Liz Warren and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. It's kind of comedic. And another one is an interview with journalists Max Blumenthal, Anya Parampil, and Ben Norton. So thank you so much for talking to me. My pleasure. You have a great piece in The Nation called The Israeli Elections Are a Referendum on Who Can Treat Palestinians Most Harshly. While Netanyahu's talk of annexing parts of the West Bank caused a flurry, the reality is that few parties would oppose it. And you wrote that uh, September 16th, so that was right before the elections? Yes, one day. Um, can you talk to us about um, any thoughts that you have before we can kind of dig into the article, but any thoughts that you have based on the election results? Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, you know, what's been interesting is everybody's focused on who the winner is. And uh, a lot of pundits saying whether it's Netanyahu or Gans. And in reality, we know who the loser is, and the loser is Palestinians. Uh, the loser is Palestinians because we know that both of these major parties, and in fact, all of the parties that were running for election with one exception, all of them believe in settlements. All of them uh, believe in supporting uh, some version or another of Israel taking Palestinian land. All of them believe in bombing Gaza. So it doesn't really matter who has actually won this election because for Palestinians who are living here, the reality is going to be the same. We're, we woke up on September 18th to um, still an occupation and, and we're going to see this occupation continue for a very long time unless and until there's pressure that is exerted on Israel to actually end it through the form of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign. So that's been the thing that's been most striking is that there's an entire conversation that is happening with the people who are the most affected by, the, by who's elected not even engaged in that conversation. We're not even a footnote in that conversation that, that is happening. It's just this looking at it from the perspective of um, of who has won uh, in terms of these political parties and not really looking at people and what that means. Right. And there's this discussion that presents um, Benny Gantz as a kind of moderate, the non 
Trumpian uh, Israeli option. And as you point out in your article, the election was really Trump versus Trump. Uh, And you write, even the much lauded Benny Gantz launched his campaign in January by bragging about how, as Israel's military chief, he had bombed parts of Gaza to the Stone Age, a reference to the devastating 2014 Israeli military assault that decimated the besieged Gaza Strip. Netanyahu, of course, has been Netanyahu declaring on Facebook last week that Arabs are trying to annihilate us and warning that should the left wing win, the only way it will be able to form a government is by forging a coalition with the Arabs and quotes the Arabs. So there does seem to be a difference in optics that we see a lot in U.S. politics, too, that I think can sometimes distract from the substantive similarity. Yes. Is that a, an accurate assessment of the, the Gantz-Netanyahu difference? Yes, definitely. So, you know, the, if, if you, the, the reason that, there's, that there is this perception is because Netanyahu is so closely aligned with Trump. And in right. fact, his, his, his uh, campaign, most of his ad campaign was a picture of him standing side by side with Trump with it written in Hebrew saying, Netanyahu, a different league, meaning right. that he and Trump are in the same league. Right. And so for, um, uh, for the outsider who is looking at this, they would say, all right, Trump is the uh, sorry, Netanyahu is the Trump um, candidate, and he very much is. I don't want to. I don't want right. to um, belittle deny that him that, that right. Absolutely. Deny him that honor. Right. Yes, he's very much the the Trump candidate. But um, and the reason that people were focused so much on Gantz is that Gantz actually stayed fairly quiet during this this election. Um, when he did speak, it was very much against Palestinians in terms of how mm-hmm. much he was going to crush us, etc. But um, he never brought up the issue of Trump. So for the for the person who's sitting in the United States who may be very critical of um, of somebody like Netanyahu, Gantz appears to be a. a, a a good alternative. The mm-hmm. problem is, is that you need to have some sort of denial of reality to be able to believe that because on all of the major issues relating to Palestinians, they are exactly the same. In fact, when when Netanyahu announced that he was going to annex um, parts of the West Bank, all of the West Bank, uh, and then uh, but starting with the Jordan Valley. Um, it was Gantz who came out and said, oh, finally, he's come to his senses. This is the plan that we had put out many, many years ago. So it's not like there is any difference between the two. Also, when it comes to the issue of racism, one thing mm-hmm. that is true about uh, Trump is that he's very overtly racist. His yeah. Those statements that he made were the ones that he made before elections. You should have heard the stuff that he said on election day. Everything right. from the Arabs are voting in droves, his son uh, tweeting out a picture of some voters in Turkey and saying, look how many Arabs there are voting. Please go out and rush to vote. And then later coming out and saying, um, if you want to, if you don't want to see an Arab sitting here in these seats, meaning as ministers, then um, right. please vote for Likud. Gantz, on the other hand, while his uh, rhetoric isn't as openly racist, he has the same position. He's the same person who, who has supported the nation state bill 
um, this is the bill that the law, excuse me, that that enshrines the supremacy of Israel's Jewish citizens over um, over its Palestinian or non-Jewish citizens. And he also has said that he will never form a coalition with any of the Arab parties. Not that we right. want to form a coalition with him either, because we don't want to be in a government of occupation. But you know, but the sentiment of him feeling that he needs to express that and say that he doesn't want any any Arabs in his in his cabinet is um, it, it's also the same. So you really have to um, put blinders on in order to not see the similarities between the two because they are virtually identical. In the words of one, in words of the Palestinian prime minister, it's the difference between Coke and Pepsi. They, they, right. They're both the same. And both really bad for you. And both very bad for you. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> But have a lot of uh, PR. Mm -hmm. uh, all these headlines are kind of kind of making it like you said uh, in your piece. You, you say that people are talking about it like it's a referendum on democracy, and you say, "Oh, I say it's not a referendum on the occupation, which is what it should be." So despite the talk of this election as a referendum on democracy, then what is perhaps most notable is the lack of substantive choice. This is not a referendum on Israel's military rule over millions of disenfranchised Palestinians in the occupied territories. It's cruel and illegal siege on Gaza or its racist policies towards Palestinian citizens of Israel. Rather, it is for Palestinians in particular a choice between, as we said before, Trump versus Trump. As in substance, the major parties' policies are virtually indistinguishable. You were a, a negotiator, right? Yes. Can you talk about that experience and how much that may change your view of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Yes, definitely. It depends on how how many days you have for me. Yeah, right. Say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'll um, just go. I'll I'll leave the recorder on. I'll go for a walk. Yeah, come back. So you know, I I moved to Palestine young, uh, virtually uh, newly out of law school, and very much of the mindset that this was just a question of getting a legal agreement, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, and that's the end of it. And it, it was a very rude awakening and, uh, and very, much a, very much a learning experience to, to realize that that, that, wasn't, that wasn't what was happening. And, and a lot of that was because I was somebody who's reading the mainstream newspaper, right. and I thought that this was just... I thought that their reporting was exactly what was happening on the ground. And I later realized that they were certainly reporting one side, which was the 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 way that Israelis perceived things, but not at all focused on the actual reality of more settlements going up, more checkpoints going up, Palestinians being denied the, the very basics um, a blockade on Gaza, which began even before Hamas was ever elected, a decade before Hamas was right. ever elected, and th these were the things that started to, um, to to pull at me. And plus, being in the negotiations, that's when you saw the, at least for me, I saw the raw power and and how power operates. So, for example, um, and this, by the way, was with a labor government, the so-called you know left-wing government. Uh, I remember at one point in time, there was a map that that the Israelis presented with a redrawing of the of the of the green lines so that Israel would take some major Israeli settlements, including the major settlement of Ariel, which is you know is almost thirty kilometers into the West Bank, like twenty miles into the West Bank. And it, uh, so it was right smack in the heart of the West Bank. and during those negotiations, I said to one of the 
negotiators, you know, explain to me on what basis of international law are you taking, are you redrawing this line? And he, he chuckled and he said, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to respect international law when I'm forced to respect it. Until that time, it's just you and me in a room. Wow. And that was that. That was he's the, honest. Yeah, he was very honest. And, and again, this is somebody who describes himself as a, as a lefty. Right. Uh, and and so that it, it was those episodes that really began to sink in for me that what Israel was very much interested in was the illusion of a of a peace process, but that it didn't actually want to ever end the occupation. And they still have that today. You'll still hear today that so many um, Israeli politicians or Israelis will say, yes, we believe in there should be something, some negotiations with Palestinians. But then when you press them on, well, why why does it take a Palestinian for you to end your occupation? Or uh, what does right. ending the occupation look like to you? They can't describe it because they've been, they, they've conditioned themselves to believe that the settlements are part of Israel and that it is their right to continue to hold on to those settlements. And so th that process for me was, um, was not only very jarring, but also very eye-opening and informative. And, and it now having gone through it, I can, I can, um, see exactly where, uh, what is motivating Israel and how, how, how they, there's a, an, a very deliberate attempt to try to cover up the occupation. And, uh, and sadly, a lot of people have learned to, to, to close their eyes to the occupation. So Gaza, for example, an area that Israel continues to blockade and besiege and bomb, uh, cutting off the electricity, there isn't a proper water supply there, all Israeli controlled. They don't allow cancer patients to get the necessary uh, radiation equipment into Gaza, and they don't allow these patients out to get treatment. And this is all happening under Israel's watch. And it's a slow, 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 um, you know, death by a thousand cuts. And in some cases, not slow either. And yet, right. if you ask Israelis, they, they're, they're completely immune to it or completely indifferent to it. If, if you, if you talk about Gaza, it's like they roll their eyes or, um, or they, or they justify what Israel's doing. And the idea that somebody can justify war crimes, um, is it shows you exactly what what's happened to this to this society, and that it wasn't the the when I walked in, it wasn't um, a society that was was different. It was the same. It's just that the what I was reading was very different um, than than what was on the ground. So is that something you? So you were negotiating. You were representing the PLO, right? Yes. yes. Um, is that something? you wouldn't do like the person that you are now. I mean, this is like a time travel question, but I guess it seems like you it really changed the way you see the situation. So Absolutely. is that something you would not do now? I would never do it now. Yeah, I would never do it. Now. I would never do it now for a couple of reasons. First is because I no longer believe. Um, but secondly, and, and, uh, and I think the more important thing is that there was a, this idea that that um, Palestinians have to negotiate with their oppressor is mm -hmm. something that I, I can't, um, I, I find actually quite repugnant. So it, this, this were, these were not negotiations that were between equals. It was, it was an oppressed people, um, really in many ways, just trying to get the oppressor to see, see us as humans. You know, I can, I can relate story after story about being held up at Israeli 
checkpoints on the day of a negotiation session. Like there's wow. a negotiation session and being with the senior negotiators and, you know, an 18 year old soldier stopping that senior negotiator um, at a checkpoint because, because they could. And then mm -hmm. having to work all of these various channels to try to get this um, 18 year old to release a very senior Palestinian negotiator so that they could go to a negotiation session. So at every step of the way, it was always, um, it was, they were, the Israelis were always showing us who was more powerful and who was in control, whether it was the statement about, I'll respect law when I'm forced to, or right. being held up at checkpoints. It was always a, there was always a power imbalance with Israel always trying to flex its muscles and show us just how strong it was. And so when you were negotiating, that was um, for Arafat? Yes. And who yeah. was the, was that Rabin? No, Rabin was uh, was assassinated. So this was the time of uh, of Ehud Barak was, oh, right. was the, uh, the the now leftist. You know, now he's since right. joined um, one of the leftist parties, uh, the so-called leftist parties. So this is my, my point is if you have somebody like Ehud Barak, who's classified as a leftist. Ehud Barak was, oversaw the, the biggest surge of settlements in, in Israel's history, apart from Netanyahu. Um, he's a person who, who ordered that Palestinians, including Palestinian citizens of Israel, be gunned down. Uh, if he's considered a dove, then I'd hate right. to see what a hawk is. Yeah. Is there a danger in the Gantz victory? Because I know that like Tony Jutt, who's, uh, who died, the historian, um, I remember him writing a piece at the London or New York Review of Books um, when Netanyahu was elected, and he was kind of not celebrating, but he was saying that the silver lining was that um, uh, so-called progressive American Jews were not going to be like PEPs, right? You know, the term PEP, mm -hmm. progressive except on Palestine, that PEPs were no longer going to be able to justify supporting Israel because Netanyahu was just objectively speaking a rabid right winger you know, neo-fascist. Um, of course, he was wrong. But is there a danger that um, the Gans victory will just be used to kind of whitewash um, Israel even more than it's being whitewashed now? Yeah, definitely. You know, Peps will always be Peps, no matter what, <laughs> right. what Pep's happens. Peps going to Pep, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and, and so the only thing that Gans does is that it allows the, the Peps to, to feel a little bit smug. Um, right. But, you know, one of the... the the dangers in continuing to have Netanyahu in this uh, in this role is it's it's difficult as a Palestinian who lives here to 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 have to say that um, I want another I want Netanyahu to win right, or right. or that I prefer Netanyahu because it will it will isolate the Peps in in his period since he's been in office we've seen the highest rate of settlement activity. We've right. seen the most racist statements. He's normalized racism in Israel, as you heard from some of the election campaigns. He's put in um, individuals who believe in ethnic cleansing in his right. cabinet. And uh, he passed the, the nation state, the Jewish nation state law. He's done right. everything um, to incite hatred against Palestinians and to normalize hatred against um, against Palestinians, even just even just within Israeli society. So the idea that I would want to see him over Gans is is, is horrifying. Now, is Gans right. any better? No, clearly not. Right. Um, but I, I I feel that 
the peps are going to be peps and yeah. uh, no matter who it is, just in the same way that I remember in the United States, people said with Bush being elected, it would wake people up and, and there right. would be this sudden awakening. Unfortunately, it doesn't have that, happen yeah. that way. Um, these are processes and we, we need to work and we need to educate people. Right. And uh, yeah. I mean, I just to clarify, I didn't mean that you were going no, to be. No, I know. Yeah, I know. yeah. right. No, I know. It's exactly. more that like one of the surprising. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the. Oh. Totally um, get it. I totally get yeah. it. No, I, 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 I think you're you're right. I mean, Gantz, the 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 fear of Gantz is that it it allows people to go back into snooze mode again. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, and and so instead of critiquing, um, instead of critiquing Israel. There's this great phraseology, which is great, I'm saying in a, in a bad sense. There's a terrible yeah. phraseology that's called Netanyahu's Israel, as though uh, um, right. the adjective Netanyahu is what's defining Israel rather than just Israel. Israel yeah. is, is, is bad no matter who the prime minister right. is. Yeah. And, uh, and so, so getting rid of the adjective is the is the fear that it they don't have to focus on the noun Israel they just have to focus on getting rid of the adjective Netanyahu's Israel right um, and that which we the, see with Trump here right exactly um, Trump and America. people yeah. longing for the days of George Bush yes H W um, which is pretty scary now it is there does seem to be a parallel between Trump's language obviously he really does say racist things. I mean, it's an understatement. And, and, and you mentioned this. So is Gantz going to be someone whose policies are racist and destructive, but whose discourse won't be at that level? I think so. I think that yeah. he's, um, I think that he's going to be, uh, I, you know, it's hard to say. <laughs> right. <laughs> what I can say is, the reason I'm saying it's hard to say is that he ran a very quiet campaign. Right. And his campaign was very much just a picture of him with a few words that said, uh, uh, what was it? A unity, secular government. That's it. Mm. And, mm-hmm. uh, and he didn't do. He didn't give tons of interviews. He didn't say a whole lot. And so it's hard to judge by what he, how he's going to speak when he's when he's in office. Right. So. I guess secular is an attempt to be to position himself as the more like evolved, enlightened. Yes. Um, Yes. Option. Yes. So, um, so trying to do away with some of the, um, some of the religious, um, actually, so some things like uh, encouraging more transportation on Saturdays, right. and you know, that kind of stuff. Like, yeah. He's not. He's not looking at secular in the in the in the sense of uh, a government for uh, that where there's the che- separation of right um, of the church and state or synagogue and state, synagogue and state right. <laughs> um, yeah. but but more in the sense of let's just open things up a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. not being as orthodox, right. uh, accommodating. Right. And what is it that you want people to know about and, and be aware of that they're not getting from the mainstream or so-called liberal press? And, and what do you recommend for, for good sources of media? You know, there's a there's a there's the traditional. I'll use traditional, non traditional cases rather than a traditional feminist. So there's the traditional okay. way of reporting, and the traditional way of reporting is uh, is about looking at diplomatic events yeah. and and um, and building a story around a diplomatic event. Uh, Netanyahu went. Netanyahu came. Net, uh, Abu Mazen or Mahmoud Abbas went. There was this meeting. There, so and and that's what a lot of the reporting is and mm-hmm. viewed in that framework um, you don't 
you don't get the you don't understand what life is actually like for for Palestinians. And so, the other way of reporting is reporting where you're seeing what life is like for people who are living on the ground and who are suffering under Israel's military occupation. So oftentimes, what I find very frustrating is. People say to me, "Yeah, but you know, it's gone on for 52 years." And、right. my response is, "Yes, it's gone on for 52 years. Imagine the weight of that. Imagine how heavy that is, and what 52 years means. 52 years means more than one generation.、Mm-hmm. Um, 52 years means that people haven't seen a day of free- the vast majority of people have not seen a day of freedom in their in their lifetime." Fifty-two、um, years means that there's an entire generation that has only ever look, lived behind checkpoints, behind a wall,、uh, who doesn't know who they, they don't know what it's like to be able to have 3G on the, on, a,、right. on a cell phone. They don't know what it's like to not witness a home demolition. There's an entire ten、um, grades of of one school that they don't know what it's like to not live. Without the threat of their school being demolished, and and so for people who just look at the the number as though it's somehow a boring,、uh, this boring number that's just repetitive, they don't really understand what the repetitiveness has meant and what what life is actually like living under occupation. What life is actually like to not have electricity, to not have fresh water, to not be able to get、um, medical treatment. To your kid never being able to see the sunset or go to the beach, if you're in the West Bank, these、wow. are the these are the the realities that whether where dreams are so simple for a child in Gaza, their dream is to be able to to go to Jerusalem, which is only eighty kilometers away, and a child in the West Bank, their dream is to be able to go to the sea, which is only less you know twenty kilometers away. And these are the the things that、um, people don't report about because they're too busy reporting about the the person went, the person had a meeting, yeah, etc. And、um, and so that's the stuff that that for me, as I mentioned earlier on,、um, I I felt like I had been duped. You know, I felt like、mm-hmm. I I knew the ins and outs of every single meeting, but I didn't、right. know what it was like to for a Palestinian farmer to see. Their olive grove set aflame virtually every year, as settlers are trying to deny them their their one source of livelihood.、Yeah. It reminds me kind of of the like history from below versus the official history, or like you know Howard's in exactly、um, the way it's you know focusing on the lived experiences versus the interactions and contracts and you know、uh, treaties of the elite powerful. Non-representative, alleged representatives. Exactly.、Um, yeah. And also, I mean, you hear this refrain. I hear it so much about, well, the Israelis offered this, and then the Palestinians refused. So, what do you expect? I mean, they, they, there's like a distortion of diplomatic history. Yes. But, but it's also this emphasis on diplomatic history allows Israel apologists to hide behind that, as if it's the. Fault of the of all Palestinians that there was some negotiation that they see as as bad. Well, and also it's this idea that it's Israel's to offer. That's the problem. Yeah, and right, and when、yeah. you when you start from the premise that this is Israel's land to offer to the Palestinians、right. rather than rather than Palestinian land that is 
that is that is being rightfully um, right. going back to to Palestinians. It's a it's a different way of framing, and and the the problem is is that there's this. Uh, not only a notion of of generosity, but then an ability like charity, to a yeah. charity, but then um, an ability to collectively punish and right. and that's been um, that's been what it, that's what it's like to live as a Palestinian is that we are always under the system of collective punishment. So when when right. Netanyahu says that he won't be in a government with the Arabs, it, this is right. what exactly he's talking about: is that we are we're not individuals; we're just this. This one mass of of um, of people, and uh, you know, so it's it's is what's interesting to me now is as we're standing at this moment, um, what what was interest what was for me the most interesting about this election to bring it back to the election was that there's one political party which is called the Joint List. It's the only anti-Zionist political party which has um, both Palestinians and Israelis in in their uh, on their on their list, um, that that ended up getting votes not only from Palestinian Arab voters but also from Jewish Israeli voters, mm. and and that it's now looking as the only real opposition inside Israel because it's an opposition that believes in equality. It's an opposition that doesn't believe in the denial of freedom. It's an opposition that wants to see it, that is pushing for an end to to the occupation, pushing for an end to Israel's bombing campaigns. And this is now the, this is like the the fact that this is the alternative, and that it's a, it's an anti-Zionist um, political party that is pushing this alternative. It says a lot about about where we where we are now. Like while the Israeli ministers are um, homophobic and transphobic mm-hmm, right. and misogynist and uh, routinely Photoshop out women. Uh, women from their from the pictures of the cabinet, right? This is, this oh, wow. is uh, 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 the Palestinian MKs are the opposite. They're the ones who are pushing for LGBTQ rights. They're the one who's pushing for women's rights alongside fighting the day to day grind of anti Palestinianism and, and Islamophobia. And uh, and so that's for me the. Well, that's interesting. The, I should do an episode on that. Yeah, that's for me where where, where I, I see things that are interesting is that you have uh, much of Israeli society, uh, the not society, much of the Israeli political parties bunched into the into that other category of racist, uh, right, homophobic, etc. And then uh, and then you see this the real alternative. And it's not at all coincidental that the real alternative is an alternative that is also um, has at its core pushing for Palestinian freedom and equality. Yeah, because, of course, there's that narrative that it's like, you know, the enlightened Israel, Israeli, enlightened Israeli uh, society versus these like barbarians. And there's so much pinkwashing. Yes. So do you think if, let's say, Gantz is less overtly racist, less racist in his discourse, will that be an improvement uh, at all? Yes. Will that make life a Yes. Best? It will make life, I, I don't want to turn it into like it's going to be life-changing, but it will make life right. definitely a little bit better. I, I can tell you just from personal experiences um, living here that there are times where um, I'm afraid to speak Arabic mm, um, right. in public places where I've actually been told to stop speaking Arabic in public places, and uh, and where there's there's so much anti 
um, anti-Arab racism that that you're that it, it's frightening. It's really it's mm-hmm. really frightening, and I'm uh, I'm somebody that they can't tell if I'm if I'm uh, Arab uh, or Jewish. They can't tell if I'm if I'm Christian or Muslim. They, they right. can't tell, and uh, and and if I'm if I feel that, you can just imagine what it's like for people uh, for others, right? Who who people who are visibly yeah, Muslim right. or um, or visibly Christian who are wearing a Christian um, like a cross on their neck, right? And and this is the it's become so fashionable and for for Israel to be racist that um, that they don't even think twice about it. And the fact that, for example. The fact that Obama, President Obama, said something against Netanyahu in the 2015 election when he said the Arabs are voting in droves, right. um, and that you know made Obama uh, made Netanyahu pause for a little bit. This time around, with he said the exact same thing. Yeah, and nobody came forward, not Trump, not anybody, and said, right, course, "Wow, yeah. this is shocking." And not only did nobody from the United States. Nobody within Israel found it shocking either, mm. and that's the scary part: is that it's become so normalized right. that um, that it, it's it, it's not easy living here. And so, if Gans's uh, rhetoric is is less, that'll be an improvement. Right. This isn't going to be earth shattering, but sure, right. at least, um, and it's not going to obviously take away the racism; it's still there. Right. But um, but there's something to be said for elected officials who are espousing hate, as, as you all know, in, in the United right. States, um, versus those who don't. Right. So it seems like what your point is like, yeah, there will be a difference, but it's not the difference that the me- American media or Israel apologists or perhaps are pretending it will be. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Not to, to play into the uh, diplomatic uh, history critique, uh, but what was Arafat like? He was a complex. Uh, <laughs> he was a complex figure. He he was somebody who um, oh, I don't know how to. I don't want to be a revisionist because he he made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, having worked with both him and the current president, there's a there was a difference between between the two of them. So he was somebody who he very much very naively, by the way, very much believed in in um, when you give your word. It mm-hmm. means your word, yeah. and so a lot of the Oslo negotiations, there were a lot of like um, it was a lawyer's nightmare. There were a lot of like gaps in the in all the various agreements, and it was mostly because um, Tzach Rabin had said to him, I, "If I put this in writing, the Knesset is never going to improve it." So, but you know, you and I, we're on the same page, and yeah. and Arafat very much. Believed that, so he and he very much like clung to that. So mm-hmm. even after Rabin's death um, or assassination, he he would often he would often repeat these things, and it was it was sort of akin to people sort of saying to him like, "Yes, wake up," but right. he said it, but he didn't believe it, and and he said it, and he did the exact opposite. But he he had this sort of stubborn way of of very much believing in people because they had because um, they shook hands. Yeah. Um, so he he was that. He was also um, he was also he also had a wicked memory, and mm. um, uh, he he was he was very charismatic. Like he was the type of person that 
if if he walked into the room, you could feel mm. that he walked into the room right. without even looking. You could feel his presence huh. in um, in the room. With me, he was very um, he was very much like a grandfather. He was mm. always concerned that everybody was was well fed, well rested, yeah, and right. you know, very very grandfatherly. He also had his 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 flaws. Uh, he he could be um, stubborn to to a fault, and mm-hmm. uh, and like a lot of leaders, an egomaniac to a fault, and yeah. uh, and so. So he's, he was all to say he was complicated. He was very he was a very complicated, um, rich in in the sense not financial right. rich. And in fact, he was quite poor financially. Like oh uh, really? Yeah he 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 wore actually you know, the the boots he wore was were probably about fifteen years old. Oh wow! Uh, clothing he wore was always very old. Um, he he. Uh, he he himself was not corrupt, but he corrupted people. So he he definitely knew uh, how to spend money on 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 people, and um, and if he thought that there, it was going to do something good for Palestine, he would invest right. in it. But uh, but not not so much on himself. Mm. And um, how did you become a um, a negotiator? And what brought you to that? I mean, you were you grew up in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, how, what was your trajectory besides, as we mentioned before, a lot of education? Oh, this is uh, uh, another long story. So I grew up in a household that um, was political, but political focused on Canada mm-hmm. and not so much on Palestine. Um, my parents really, I think, wanted to shield me from. Uh, what it's like to be—they were Palestinian citizens of Israel. They, my father lived through the Nakba. He was—he uh, was kicked out of his home at the age of nine, and his town destroyed, never—you know—never to go back. And then lived under an apartheid system um, from the time that he was nine until the time he left the country when he was in his late twenties. And so, for for him and for my mother. I, I think they saw Canada as a, a refuge of sorts and, and didn't really want to live um, through that turmoil and through, through that trauma any longer. So, um, so that was the household that I was raised in. And it was when the first Intifada started that I was moved to um, learn more about Palestine, go to Palestine. I was young. But to learn more about Palestine, to go to Palestine, to witness How old Palestine. Were you? Oh, I was probably about fifteen. Okay. 16. And you and you spoke yeah. Arabic in your No, no. Oh I didn't speak Arabic. So you didn't no. you didn't know Arabic when you didn't went? No Arabic. Didn't know Arabic. And suddenly um was confronted with the Intifada and I didn't mm. know what that was about and felt very um ignorant. So I did <laughs> I did what I've done best in my life, which is I studied. <laughs> and, right. Uh, Learned Arabic, um, learned about Palestine through people, mm-hmm. and obviously through books, but through people, and that uh, really prompted me to want to to do something for Palestine. And I, I remember as a child saying, um, I I always wanted to be a doctor, and then after my visit to Palestine, saying that I want to be a lawyer and I want to do something mm-hmm. for Palestine, and. Um, and then there was kind of no looking back. So w- after I finished uh, 
university and then law school and was in uh, doing grad school. Uh, during that period, I had spent a lot of time visiting Palestine and volunteering, but I was very much in this lull that, although because the negotiations had taken place, were taking place, and so I thought uh, with negotiations underway, all of the stuff that I was seeing, like all of the the harm and the damage that I was seeing, I duped myself into believing that. All of that could be magically undone with these with negotiations. So, um, for example, when I came to Palestine in the summer of '96, um, I remember seeing many more settlements than I had seen the years before, and thinking, "Oh, it's okay; they'll all go away." Um, and then I remember being in a taxi, and because I had a Canadian passport, I was allowed to continue on in the taxi, but people. Palestinian men were taken out of the taxi and mm. forced to wait in the sun. And I used to think, oh, you know, it's okay. All of this will be, it'll all go away with the negotiations. So I had to be one of these people who, like the peps, you know, said, oh, it's just, it's all going to go away if just this one little, if these negotiations just succeed. Right. And, uh, and so when I was presented with the opportunity to, work as a lawyer on the negotiations. This came through some of the, the work that I had done as, um, as an intern and a volunteer at a number of organizations. When the opportunity presented itself, um, I said yes. Mm. And uh, I said yes and, and, and thought that it was going to be just for a short period of a year. I arrived the, second day, the first day of the second intifada, which was September of 2000, and, uh, and stayed. Mm. And stayed because it very much shook me. Like living through the the intifada, the first, for example, the first three days of the intifada, Israel killed fifty Palestinians, and I just felt like there was no way that I could uh, turn, you know, like not bear witness any longer and pretend that it didn't happen. So that was and, yeah, that's what took me there. And what are you doing now? You live in um, Haifa. Mm -hmm. And Ramallah, you said you go back and forth? Yes, I go back and forth. And I, uh, I work as a legal consultant, um, so doing a lot of legal research. And I'm an analyst and I write. I mean, I can cut this out because it's a personal question, but I'm just curious. Do you have kids? I have one, one son. Five. What's, yeah. what's it like raising a child there? Is there a lot of like... It's a the most... Um, I don't know if you have children. Mm -mm. So, so being a parent is—it's—it's <laughs> it's a process in, of learning to cope with your your constant doubt. Right. right. It's like uh, because you doubt yourself on everything. Am I being a? Am I am I being too lenient? Am I being too harsh? Am I allowing too much sugar? Am I? Uh, yeah. Allowing, you know, it's, you're just, you're always right. in self doubt. Add to that that I'm uh, raising my son in. An environment that is openly racist, mm -hmm. and uh, and how do I do that? Do do you? How do you? How do I teach him to respond to some of the racism? And we experience it, by the way, almost daily. Oh yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Almost daily, if he, how he experiences it. Or, almost yeah. daily. The the, the um, so his name is, which is a very Muslim name, right? And uh, he's blonde, 
Uh-huh. So the number of times that I've heard people say, oh, what's your son's name? Because they hear us speaking English. They hear me say, and when I tell them his name's the response is always, he doesn't look like an Right. Or, uh, and I said, well, really, well, what's an, what's an supposed to look like, right? And it's this, so and I always question myself, am I giving the right response? Am I telling? Am I saying right. the right thing? Because he's within earshot. Or right. um, what is he internalizing by what an should look like? Right. And, um, and so, you know, so it's, uh, it's self-doubt that becomes even more heightened living in a place that's racist. Because yeah. I'm always asking myself, should I be living here? Or uh, should I go to Canada, given that I have the, the privilege of... Um, of being able to leave, right. and uh, and it's a it's the daily question that I ask myself, um, and not to say that Canada is is right better, paradise as, yeah. as we saw today with the prime <laughs> right. minister. Yeah, um, congrats. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, so not to say that Canada is better on the racist front. Um, the difference is is that it, it wouldn't. I th- I think. He, here, the, the challenge is that I want him to understand what it right. means to be an a, activist who is against apartheid, against racism, and opposed to occupation and who's striving for, uh, who wants to see freedom. Yeah. And, and then on the other hand, like every mother wants just a normal happy childhood for their for their child and that and that's the that's what pulls me mm-hmm. each and each and every day um add to that i don't know if you've ever been here but israel has these uh it, they have a series of sirens that they they blare mostly around the 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 jewish holidays and my son who's five asks the questions all the time why are the sirens going off and the sirens are by the way are not these are not warning sirens these are yeah. commemoration sirens and it's just it's so the thing that i struggle with is that he's from this land and he was born here and he's made to feel as though he's an outsider an yeah. interloper and uh, and that it's a state that uh you know also like other states that that in many cases, in many ways, worships um, power and might and militarism, yeah, and uh, and I I struggle with that. Does he ask questions all that, the time? All the time, yeah. All the time. When we go through checkpoints, he asks right. why there's checkpoints. When he sees the twenty five foot high wall, he asks why there's a wall. He 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 also asks about why there's graffiti on the wall. Yeah. Um, he he asks about uh, why there's so many people carrying guns. Mm. He asks why there's army because right. kids, you know, kids don't they don't understand. I don't think we yeah. understand why. There's right, so much. but they're not used to it. They're so not they used to it. Have, yeah. Um, he he can he he can sense hostility, and he asks yeah. why why people are mean. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, when you mentioned the blonde thing, it reminded me of how uh, Michael Oren suggested yes. that, or just overtly lied about um, Taimi being yeah, uh, an implant. An act- yes. Yeah, an actor, like a family of actors, and that they don't even look Palestinian. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't believe that. Yeah. 
I mean, I can, I keep, this is my constant refrain. It's like, I, I say that I can't believe something. And then like, how many times are they going to do something oh, yeah. ridiculous yeah. before I'm not going to be on some level surprised? It's, it's funny you say that because I say the same every day about Trump. Yeah. I say, oh, dear, there's no way. And then there's a way. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the problem. Yeah. There's a way. Your husband, because your hu is your husband, he's not Jewish, right? No, he's not Jewish. So yeah. that's not problematic because Hugely he's... Hugely problematic, problematic. Oh, it is. Hugely problematic. So uh, we went through a process of seven years of um, every six months having to prove that we were still married. You're, yeah, you're going to love yeah. this story. So... It was uh, so. All right, so let me back up. I am. Uh, I was born in Canada, but under Israeli law, one generation of um, of children who are born to citizens of the state have citizenship. So I, by virtue of oh, my okay. parents, have citizenship, and uh, and so I'm. I, I got citizenship upon birth, um, but not by virtue of being born here because of my parents. What my husband, on right. the other hand. Um, his father left Palestine in 49, I think it was, uh, and moved to the United... He was living in uh, different... He was living throughout the Arab world and then moved to the United States, uh, which is where he met his wife and married and three kids. When my husband and I got married, from the time that we got married until set for a full seven years... We were in a process where every um, six months we had to continue to prove that we were still married. Now, how do you? And, and so right. the original um, and the the way that they think about it is it's that you have to disprove the negative. So mm -hmm. they come in with the mindset that you are not married, and you have to you have to disprove that negative. Right. So, um, so the first time that we went to get him a visa, the uh, the Israelis said, "No, we don't believe that you're married," mm. um, and they refused to give him a visa. They gave him a very short visa, and so what we then did, which they then renewed, to be a, to be fair, um, so they, in total he had six months. What we did was for six months, we took a picture of ourselves. Oh my God. Three times a day. My husband's a, a former photojournalist. Three mm. times a day, holding the newspaper, that day's newspaper, and so we, in front of a landmark in Haifa. So right. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And at the end of six months, you just, it's, you just see my hair get longer, my That's face so get more and more sour, the cat <laughs> get fatter right. <laughs> right, over the course of six months. And it was only that that then allowed them to, um, like, the, that was the reason that they ended up granting him a longer term visa, was because we were constantly in this loop of showing them right. all of these Documenting pictures. Documenting yeah. it. Yeah. Wow, you should do a guide to that for people. Yes, we've we've actually talked about um, publishing our, our photos, because yeah. they're, they're well done. <laughs> that would be really good. Um, publishing them and, and writing a little story about what that, whole experience was like. And, and what, what's going to be done or what needs to be done, do you think? I think BDS is the way, boycott, yeah. divestment, sanctions. Israel's not going to change from within. It's just not a society that is, um, it's been, the, the, the vast majority of, of Israelis have been conditioned 
through a process of of by military by they're militarized right. it, you you see it as a very young child uh, where <clears throat> the army comes to your ha to your school um, the the days of celebrations are celebrations that they're celebrating the army and fighting yeah and 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 going to the army is seen as very much seen as a rite of passage right. so kids are um, treated a certain way up until until they're then sent into the army and the, and the army becomes that rite of passage when they as as Israelis will say they get turned into a man or turned into right. a woman their second bar bat mitzvah exactly <laughs> and, um, and so the so there are people who who wake up and who say I, I don't want to live in this yeah. reality I don't want to serve in the army I don't believe in denying another people their freedom but it's it's people who really are working on themselves and trying to learn and they're not getting their information from the mainstream Israeli press right. believe me um, so change is not going to come from within the society it's going to come from outside and it's when um, Israelis are make that connection between their inability to go to um, parts of to to like European countries without getting a visa if you're if you're for example uh, a settler you won't be given a visa to visa to go into Europe mm. that or, or or recognizing that uh, companies are just not going to normalize be no, Israel's not going to be treated as a normal country yeah that Israel's going to be sanctioned um, that companies are going to pull out from Israel that's the only way that they're going to see that connection between what's happening um, to to what they're doing to Palestinians and then what what the the result is, and until that time, it's just going to continue. Uh, the occupation will continue in perpetuity, because there it, there is no the the Israeli successive Israeli governments have done away with the green line. They've erased it, and um, and so many Israelis don't even, I don't want to say they don't recognize they're going into the West Bank, but they, how do I put it? Like, they don't see that that's something wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's only when that is brought home to them and they're forced to pay a price that I think that we're going to see change happen one way or another. And are you a fan of Amo Bernie's? I definitely am. I, okay. I definitely am. And I'm, I'm hoping that. Um, and that would be so great. Yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, this is one of those other things like at this point um, that when you say, when you look at Trump and you have a, one of two responses, like anybody would be better than Trump for those who right. are on the right wing side of the Democrat Party. Right. And then you have other people who are saying, look, this is time for real change. Yeah. And uh, and so that's what. To, to referring to the Israeli elections, that's exactly what's happened here is that you've got Trump in office. And yeah. then some people saying, well, let's get the right wing branch of the other party. Um, yeah. And then other people saying this is time for real change. And, and that's what the joint list is. And uh, hopefully um, you'll see that change as well. Well, yeah. Thank you again so much. My what pleasure. time is it where you are? It must uh, be late, right? Midnight. 20 oh, minutes okay. after midnight. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Well, thank yeah. you so much. That's and my, I will email this to you. Yeah. It was really great talking to you. And you I have faith you will come to... Uh, to New York? New York, Inshallah, yes. I hope so. Yeah. I hope Inshallah, so. yeah. Ohala, yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Talk Thanks, soon. Thanks, Diana. All right. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you.